Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Today, we'll be having a brief discussion about something called fosterage. In the West, when we think about fostering a child, we think about a child that's been orphaned or somehow abandoned by a parent who's not able to care for the child or meet the child's needs. But some cultures in Europe and Scandinavia have used a form of fosterage where parents were actually capable and available for care of their children, but handed them off to another party to raise for a set period for reasons of establishing a kinship bond. While this may at first sound odd, we do have similar systems of non-blood relations in our own society in the West. Marriage is a great example, where you literally label your new family members as in-law. So you may gain a mother-in-law, or a father-in-law, or brothers and sisters-in-law. We don't tend to extend the relations too far beyond that. When it comes to nieces and nephews, we simply consider those relations as standard relations, although they would as well generally be considered severed in the event, for example, of a divorce. So while people can consider anyone family, I was Aunt Tracy to my husband's siblings' children while we were married. After our divorce, all kinship ties were cut, even those that were not labeled as simply in-law. Had I had children during the marriage, those children would still be kin to my husband's siblings' children as cousins, regardless of the divorce, due to our society's model of blood kinship. Most of us are familiar simply from cultural references to forms of fosterage in Europe that were framed around apprenticeships. Period movies or literature pieces often reference someone sending off a child to go and live with a craftsman to learn a trade or skill, as a means of transitioning into adulthood. In fact, if you watch the series The Walking Dead, they revive this fosterage with Henry, the son of Carol and Ezekiel. He wants to learn blacksmithing and is sent as a miner to go and live with the blacksmith at Hilltop Village. In the apprentice model, particularly and historically, the child was often not intended to return to their original blood relations. There were sometimes extensive laws and restrictions on the foster parents to protect and provide for the child. However, injury to the child by someone else resulted in compensation to the foster family, not the blood relations. Fostered children, additionally, were seen as a source of support for their foster parents as their foster parents aged. In most ways, it was similar to an adoption in our own culture. Also, a bit different than the Walking Dead model, fosterage in Ireland, for example, began much earlier than adolescence, with laws allowing fosterage to begin as early as one year old. Fostering in Ireland was sometimes established with payment to the foster families, but sometimes not. There may be a kinship tie established between families, but also maybe not. Foster families may also have biological children as well living in the same home. So the benefits to fostering were not as clear-cut as in some other societies where benefits were almost assured. 
In Scotland, for example, in some cases, the landed gentry would exchange children in order to secure kinship and loyalty ties. But another form of fosterage consisted of a lord sending a child to be fostered by a tenant on his own land. In these cases, the intent was not only to establish kinship and loyalty ties, but to secure financial benefits for both sides. In 1775, Samuel Johnson described this type of fosterage using the example of a lord sending a child to a tenant with a particular number of cattle. The lord contributes cows, and the tenant matches that number. The cows are considered communal property between the families. The lord provides the pasture land, rent-free, and the cows are taken care of by the tenant, including care and breeding duties. At the end of a preset number of several foster years, the cattle are divided in half, with half going to the foster parents and the other half returning home with the foster child. During the time that the tenant cares for the child and the cattle on the rent-free land, the tenant is also entitled to 100% of the produce of the total number of cows in the form of milk, cheese, and other dairy products. It's interesting to note that such an arrangement could be executed without the foster child. The fact that there is a foster child included in the arrangement seems to clearly indicate the desire for social connections, including kinship and loyalty ties. Although I'd been aware of such situations in the same way most other people are, just by incidental exposure in media and art, I did read some direct accounts of specific foster situations when I came across the Icelandic sagas. This is a history of Iceland recounting the founding families of the region and their extremely interesting and entertaining adventures. The stories are a wonderful catalog of the customs and culture of early Iceland, which was both violent and surprisingly progressive in some ways. An odd mix of self-governance and communal governance. Fostering figured prominently in the family histories. As an aside, if you can find a user-friendly English translation of the histories, it's an incredibly fun read. Not at all dry. It includes humor, action, adventure, and intrigue. I learned a lot and loved the window into the cultural development of the region, especially the introduction of Western Christianity and how it changed the local customs and justice models. One thing I found incongruous was that the society was extremely violent, with revenge killings and family feuds playing a central part in the internal politics. But in matters of justice, there was no death penalty. Justice centered around compensation, and the worst penalty one could incur was exile. I had trouble understanding how such a violent culture would not impose the death penalty for a charge of murder. I went so far as to reach out to a university with an Icelandic studies department to pose my question, and I was happy to receive an answer. Apparently, the rules of honor around killing made it a dishonor to kill a helpless or unarmed person. Executing a prisoner, then, would be an extreme dishonor to the executioner and be considered a shameful act by the larger society. This also explained why any citizen who encountered someone who returned from exile could confront them and attempt to kill them. People who returned from exile were acting outside the law, and were labeled, appropriately, outlaw. I think the sagas were the first time I came to understand the actual meaning behind that term, outlaw. So for example, if I wrongly murdered your family member, I would be found guilty and sentenced to exile. The court would then give me a set period of time to secure my things and leave, just a few days. During that time, no one would be allowed to harm me, which was a real concern as the family of my victim would be hot for revenge. So long as I stay away, I'm fine. But if I return, the victim's family, discovering I'm back in the country, can come and attempt to take their revenge. Additionally, literally every other citizen is legally allowed to kill me as I'm considered outlaw. 
But getting back to fostering in Iceland, my takeaway from the sagas was simply that it sounded like a sleepover that lasted years. The area was small, so the children were never far away, and they would just go and live with their friends' families for a stint. The families were all familiar with one another, and there was not much text dedicated to any rules or restrictions or negotiated arrangements. It was simply that so-and-so would go and live with such-and-such family, again, usually because they simply liked being with their friends, who were the biological children of the foster family. It's important to note that the families had strong bonds. The fosterage system is not an indication of lack of parental love or concern. In fact, quite the opposite. It was more about trust in friends and viewing them as family, in the same way we might let our kids go spend the summer with their grandparents or aunts and uncles and be comfortable with the idea that they're in good hands with people we know and love. I will say that despite my takeaway from the sagas that the system was casually run, Anna Hansen in her paper Fosterage and Dependency in Medieval Iceland and its Significance in Gisla Saga talks about it as a regulated system with expectations governed by custom and law. She points out that some of the children described in the sagas have foster parents, although it's recorded that they were raised in the homes of their biological families. This seems to suggest that a further form of fosterage was something similar to our view of godparents, someone who is designated as a secondary set of parents who can be relied on to care for the child should something happen to the biological family. In fact, there's at least one instance of a father dying and his son being taken in by a man of higher rank to foster after the father's death. As Hansen points out, and as I'm trying to do with this series on relationship models and family structures, quote, it shows that the perceived model of parenthood, which included a number of parenting options, was complex, end quote. And thanks to the histories in the sagas, we have a view of how these laws began and how they evolved over time. Hansen mentions a decision to codify the laws in 1117, as well as other manuscripts detailing the laws from the 1200s. Our cultural concepts of kinship and child-rearing are just that, our cultural concepts. They are not carved in stone. They can be flexible. They can look very different. Parental status can be based on biology or based on something else. We often view our cultural constructs as being immutable human conditions. I've mentioned this before, but feel this is a good time to revisit that statement when we look at these various models of child-rearing and parental rights and obligations. And once again, this is the tip of a much more diverse iceberg of cultural kinship models, a diversity that has been and continues to be swiftly disappearing. I believe there's value in making sure these cultural traditions live on, even if only in memory, because erasing them means cementing the current forms even more into the minds of the West falsely as human universal states. I hope that in some small way, these brief lessons help folks to reconsider their own assumptions as I have reconsidered my own the more I learned about the endless flexibility of human systems to adapt and change to environmental requirements. And that wraps this episode on fosterage. I hope you enjoyed it. And as always, I'm including a few resources for further reading if you're so inclined. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.